going to start our psalm series, and, um, and we're going to see, honestly, I'm not going to lie, this is an experiment today. We're going to see how this one goes. Um, I've never actually constructed a sermon around multiple psalms before, um, and so I've got all the notes here, but at a certain point, if I feel like, I'm, now I know what you're saying, Ricky, we would sit here for hours just to hear the word of the Lord, and, uh, and I appreciate that. But at the same time, there's, a, there's an old teaching mantra that most of us hold to that, that uh, and I'm going to modify it to hit all audiences, that, but when the rear is, is numb, the brain is dumb. Okay, so if we've been sitting here for so long that we're growing numb where we're sitting, then the brain is also going to disconnect. So just being mindful of that. My goal is to make it through the whole thing, but at the same time, if, if I look over here and, and we're all starting to look at the lights and the ADD set in, then we're just going to hit a pause and we'll just pick up part two next week. So we're going to be in Psalms. You know, we have covered Genesis 1 through basically up to, one, or up to Genesis 12. So we've covered Genesis 1 through 11. And then we're just taking a little reprieve right now because um, school is going to be starting, which is going to change a lot of rhythms. It just seems like a good time to take a breath because if you look at Genesis 1 through 11, that's kind of early creation. That is the beginning of all things. And then in 12, from 12 to 50, we see the beginning of Israel. We see really another distinctive mark where the patriarchs are going to begin, where God's redemptive history um, has a firm footing. So uh, the narrative kind of changes there. This is where we're going to start to see Abraham and the other patriarchs from him. So this is just kind of a, a joyful intermission, um, just for some variety, because the Psalms are wonderful. I don't know if y'all have ever just like read the Psalms um, and apart from like, hey, this is part of a one year Bible study. So I'm going to look at, at this Psalm on this day. But like if you've ever just read the Psalms, they really are wonderful because there's so much richness in them. And so what we're going to do is today we're looking at wisdom Psalms. Next week, we're going to be looking at enthronement psalms, the psalms that really talk and point us to God as king and delight in that. Um, so, for example, an enthronement psalm, uh, I like, uh, one I categorize in that would be Psalm 2. And that's one where it talks about how the nations rage and, and they have their own plans and they're making plans against God. And it says that the Lord sits in heaven and laughs. Like That's one of my favorite verses in all of the psalms because God's sitting up there on his throne going, <laughs> I don't care what y'all do, like I'm the king. I will do whatever I want. So, and then there are other psalms that talk about just the great kingship of God and who he is. And they remind us that our king is the king. So we're going to look at enthronement psalms next week. We're also going to look at uh, psalms uh, of lament and comfort. Y'all, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to have dark days whenever you don't know how to look left and right and you feel weariness in your bones and like you feel like you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and what do you do with that? There are psalms that comfort us. They remind us of just great, wonderful truths. That here's the thing, you already know. You already know these, these words and the, these truths, but whenever you see them in scripture, it means so much more. It's just a great reminder. Sometimes... Andy will, will send me a message that says, hey, I'm just going to tell you something you already know. But the Lord is with you, and he does all things well. And I'm sitting there going, I did know that, but man, it's wonderful to hear it. Right? That's what we do. We encourage one another uh, with the words of God. And so that's what Psalms does. 
But here's the problem I found. Most people don't even know why the Psalms book exists. Like, it's just another book that's out there. The Gospels make sense. Those are the historical gospel, the historical biography of Jesus Christ. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Acts tells us the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. So it's the beginning of the church. And then we know that Revelation is about the end of all things. We know that the Epistles, that, uh, that Paul and Peter and, and James and, and then the mysterious writer of Hebrews, we know that the Epistles were, are letters that were written to churches or to a particular group. Like, we know those things. We know that that uh, the Genesis is the beginning of all things, and it's telling us how all things began. But then there's, then there's like other books where we're, I don't know if we always know why they're there. So Proverbs, for example, is a collection of wise sayings. Like they don't, it doesn't flow. Like you can, like you're in Proverbs 13, and you read these two verses, and then there's a, a break, and then you read these two verses, and then there's a break, and you re, and and they don't all connect. Because it's really like a quote book. These are wise sayings. They're kind of collected. And so you can read them. The Psalms have a purpose. I like how John MacArthur actually pulls it all together. Here's what he says. The entire collection of Psalms is entitled praises in the Hebrew text. So if you want to know what Psalms means, in the original Hebrew, it meant praises. So that begins to shape how we're going to look at the Psalms. So these are praises that we're going to read over the coming weeks. We're going to learn how to praise in comfort, praise in wisdom, praise in enthronement of the king, just all these praises. He goes on, he says, the Greek translation of the New Testament is Psalms. And listen to this, which comes from, quote, the plucking or the twanging of strings, which is what they were doing up here. They were plucking and twanging. So that an association with musical accompaniment is implied. Here's what I think is really cool. The Psalms constituted Israel's ancient God-breathed hymn book, which defined proper spirit and content of worship. So when we read Psalms, we are reading poetry. We're reading the ancient hymn book that God breathed out through the psalmist so that they would know how to praise him. That changes how I read them. Because now let's expand that because we're like, okay, great. We just, we just did praise and worship. No. We did one expression of praise and worship through music. Y'all, this is praise and worship by pouring into his word. It's praise and worship whenever we go out from here. So the hymn book does give us some words. It does give us some songs that they would sing or that they would reflect upon. But I think for us, now that we have a bigger understanding because Christ has come and he said, hey, you don't gather in a temple, you go out and you plant more churches and you tell other people about the goodness of God. Our lives become lives of worship wherever we go. And therefore, these psalms go with us wherever we go. Does that make sense? So, so where they would come together uh, in that context, and this was the ancient hymn book, we take this hymn book with us wherever we go. Just like the church gathers wherever it is that God chooses to gather it. Be it on a back porch, a backyard, underground, or above ground, air conditioned, no air conditioned, praise the Lord for air conditioned. But, but wherever it is, he gathers his church He's given us his word so that we can know what it is he desires. So that's how we're going to look at the Psalms. When you're reading them, you're reading an ancient hymn book of praises of the only one true God. Okay, so what we're going to do this week, we're going to look at Psalms of Wisdom. Okay, now if you look in your Bible, it doesn't say this is a Psalm of Wisdom. This is a Psalm of Wisdom. This is kind of looking back saying that these all kind of have a common theme. And so we've, I'm just kind of taking about, about five, though there are many more. Next summer, we're going to do a psalm series. 
In the summer after that, a psalm series. It'll, the psalms will just continue to come back because there's 150 of them. Okay? And so they're, and the some are short, some are very long. But what we're going to do is kind of categorize them in that way. But y'all, if we want our lives to be lives of holy sacrifice and we want to live lives of worship, then I think that the psalms are going to help us do that. They're going to keep pulling our attention back together. Okay, so how do we read these? My first thing is very carefully. Like, just like all other scripture, how do you read a psalm? You read it carefully. Number two, it's poetry, which means that whenever you read it, it's not all literal. There's poetic expression. And so some of you, I just started losing. You're like, I don't like poetry. Yes, you do. Whenever you turn on the radio, whenever you leave this place and you're listening to music, you're listening to poetry. We all love poetry. We just don't like to study poetry in a classroom. This isn't a classroom. This is a gathering of God's people. We delight in the poetry that he's given us. Okay, so read it carefully. Know that it's poetry. And then understand this. Consider that these are written by a human person who held a very high view of God. That's incredibly important for understanding. A human person just like you and I who has an incredibly high view of God. Therefore, whenever we read this, we're probably finding the psalmist saying, exactly something that resonates in our heart, though we know we fail to do it. Y'all with me on that? I long for a high view of God. I pray for it. Like Moses said to God, show me your glory. And God's like, you can't handle it. But I want to put you in the cleft of a rock and you can look at my backside. Okay, and, and so like, that's what I think the Psalms ultimately do for me is they begin to say something in my soul that I can't even articulate sometimes. And they, they articulate for me what I want to be able to say and hold of my God. So, so that's how we read them. So we read them humbly. We read them with those. But now why do I love the Psalms? If you're asking me, because I tell people, I'm like, oh, I love the Psalms. Just, I know, but I love Colossians. I love Hebrews. I love Romans. But I'd really do like the Psalms because of this. It's one of the most human books to me in the whole Bible. It's entirely human. Here you have one guy in one breath saying, Oh, I have no fear because you are God and you are near. And then in the next breath, oh God, they are about to overcome me. Like you have a psalmist who, who knows what it means to suffer and to be in darkness and, and to despair. And then in the next breath, there's a psalmist rejoicing with full delight on a mountaintop. Like there's a psalmist who, who, who's just very real and human. There's a whole range of human emotion throughout the psalms. And so that's why I like it, because it makes sense. Because I don't know about y'all, but I don't smile every day, and I don't feel like everything's wonderful every day, and I don't feel like I'm always worshiping God every day like I want to, and yet I would long to. And so here's a very human book for me. They teach me, Psalms teach me, they teach me how to think, how to, how to talk, how to pray, how to meditate. Like I told you, they, they kind of articulate for me what's going on deeper within my soul. Um, and they, they kind of pull it out. And so you can actually take the Psalms and you can turn them into prayers. It's something I'm going to encourage you to do. Take a, take a couple of verses. And um, in fact, just a roundabout way to show you how Psalms can work. Christy shared a picture of a memory verse. And I don't even remember the, the address of it, the reference of it. But she shared it with the women to which Chas said, look at this verse. And it says, um, if I say my foot slips, the mercy of the Lord surrounds me. So Chas shows me that like three weeks ago, just randomly, because Christy shared it with Chas. I'm driving, all of the anxiety of everything that's coming on is like starting to fuel and like burn within me while I'm driving to work. And I'm like, God, 
my foot slips. Like that's the only prayer I have for you right now is my foot slips. And it was a wonderful day despite everything going on. So that's all buried. That's why I love the Psalms. They become such easy prayers for us. So how wonderful that, that God has allowed these inspired words to be passed on through his church so that we can grow more and more in him. Okay, so we're going to get into it. What then are these wisdom psalms? Okay, so psalms of wisdom, and then we're going, to, we're going to start plowing through them as much as we can. What then are the wisdom psalms? These wisdom psalms, and these are not my own words. They're, they're from a, a commentary I use, but it did such a great job, this particular one. It says, the wisdom psalms have a clear affinity with the wisdom literature, which, by the way, means like Job, um, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, you read those and you're like, hey, there's a lot of wisdom there. It's not even necessarily a, a story arc. Job has a story arc, but it's just a lot of wisdom packed into this one book. That's called wisdom literature. Okay, So wisdom psalms have a clear affinity for wisdom literature. What does that even mean? Okay, So here's it's summed up really well in Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord, do you know the rest? Is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And you know what it says right after that? Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we want to be wise. Where does wisdom begin? Fear of the Lord. So all wisdom literature and all those different books, they are based on fear of the Lord. So they're going to usually, this goes on, it says the wisdom tradition upholds, here we go, the virtues of godliness, the rewards of God, the contrasting way of the righteous and the wicked, and the respective ends of both groups. Wisdom and law are closely related because they both celebrate Yahweh's revelation. Okay, what does all that mean? That we want to know the wisdom of God, which begins with fearing and worshiping Him. We want to know the wisdom of God because this is the life He wants us to live. So as we look at these, these Psalms, you're going to be like, oh, I can take that. I can do that. You know why? Because God didn't make the life He wants us to live a mystery. He told us how he wants us to live. He didn't just say, go and be different. He said, this is what different looks like now. Okay, so, for example, y'all go to Psalm 1. This is our launching point. Psalm 1 chose it, and this will be the method. The first of each theme will be the first one that we read each time to kind of launch. But, but take a look at the wisdom that we gain here in Psalm 1. The way of the righteous and the wicked is what the ESV titles it. But it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So this is wisdom. This is a wisdom psalm. It gives you so much that you can hold on to and cling to. It's one of my favorite psalms for this very reason. Like if I, if I peel back all the layers, you're like, why is that your favorite? Because there's so many more that are more, much more eloquent. Because this one's just crystal clear. You know what? There are not three areas here. There's the righteous and the wicked. There is not the, I'm kind of figuring things out and, and I, I'm going to get things right one day and, and I'm going to kind of mosey along and, and I'm sometimes good, I'm sometimes bad. There's no gray. There's black and white all throughout Scripture. And this one just kind of highlights it. There's wisdom in knowing that. 
Y'all, we don't get to play games. There's black and there's white. So, what do we learn from this? That the righteous person, for example, is not going to take counsel from ungodly people or spend too much time in their company. That's what it says. We've got to be careful of the company we keep. I think that 1 Corinthians 15.33 says it best. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. That's what this reminds us of, right? There's wisdom in who we hang out with. Yes, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Yes, he went to them. But then you know what he told them? Go and sin no more. Like he went to them to bring them out. He did not go to them to dwell with them. He went into the darkness to bring them back out of it. But we need to be careful that, yes, we go in and we approach and we, we go into their context, but it's not to dwell there, but it's to bring them back out of it. So that tells us that we need to be careful of the company we keep. I'm doing this one in, in a summary form. Okay, so there's wisdom. We see how that's kind of embedded in there. The righteous person, it says, not only is careful the company they keep, but it says that they're going to love God's word and they're going to think on it day and night and the righteous person will flourish like a tree planted by streams of water. So, if I want to be righteous, what's the wisdom that God's word gives to me? That whenever I behold such a high God and I am his and I have the righteousness of Christ, there are a few things I'm going to do. I'm going to watch the company that I keep. I'm going to love his word. I'm going to think on his word. And I'm going to have great joy because he will not let this tree be uprooted. Like there's a resting in the sovereignty whenever I trust in him. The wicked person, it says, will not be like the tree. Uh, the chaff, that's the useless dust of a harvest. So we go out, we, we gather all the wheat into a basket, and we begin to, to toss it in the air and to churn it like this, which I have no idea. I've never you know, tossed wheat, but I'm just imagining this is what it would look like if I had one right here. Okay. But as I'm doing it, the, the wheat, the useful, will fall back into the basket, and the dust will, will rise up, and the wind will, will blow it away. That's the chaff. So that's who the wicked are. The wicked are the useless, uh, uh, the useless dust of the harvest. They're going to be absolutely wiped away. That is not popular in any way in churches in America right now, um, unless they want to get really, truly biblical. So whenever I say in churches in America, I'm talking about mainstream. We need to be very, very careful that we actually profess that, yes, there's a black and a white, there's a righteous and there's a wicked, because that's what God's Word, God's word says. And that what God calls sin, we must call sin. Who are we? We are no one. His word stands. So we have to hold that line. Okay, so it says that there's a wicked person, there's a righteous. The wicked are going to be, uh, I'm sorry, are not going to be able to stand in the judgment before Christ. So there's wisdom. That's, that's how it operates. See that? Okay, so cool. That's a small sampling. My goal is to cover three Psalms. I'm thinking probably two, but we're going to try for three. Are right, y'all with me? Here we go. Psalm 15. This is also one of those where if you've got a pen, Psalm 15 is like, man, you're, I see a lot in Psalm 15 that I would be highlighting, circling. Um, Psalm 15, and, and so you know the format. We're going to read the psalm, and then I'm going to ask the question, what is the wisdom we gain from this psalm? That's the approach on this one, on, on this, this format. Psalm 15, here's wisdom for us. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? And who shall dwell on your holy hill? So in other words, who does God allow to dwell with him? Like who gets to be in your presence, God? That's a, that's a question. Here's the answer. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue 
and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised and who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. There is a practical application. Y'all, we positionally in heaven are reconciled in Christ. So positionally, we are righteous in Christ. But if we say that, that we are destined for heaven and that we are righteous in Christ and yet live a life that does not show that, then we need to check our heart because that does not work. Scripturally, it, show, it says that, that we are, we are double-minded. But there is a way that is right to God and it leads to life. And there is a way that seems right to man and its way leads to death. That's scriptural. It says there's a way that seems right to man. Its way leads to death. It actually repeats that exact proverb several times throughout the books of Proverbs. One of the most chilling passages is in the book of Judges for me. That it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We got to be careful that just because it seems right in our own eyes doesn't mean it's right before God. In fact, while everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, God was not praising that. He was not committing them, saying, well, you're doing the best you can. He says, no, I'm going to send a judge. These people need help. I'm going to send someone who will act on my behalf to pull this nation back to me. Y'all, we must be careful. Do you want to live a life where you get, that, that, that shows that you get to sojourn in the tent of God and that you get to dwell on his holy hill? You and I want that. We either want it or we don't. Like, that's just the truth of it. This is either absolutely worth it, Christ is going to demand all of my life, and he's worth it, and we will spend and be gladly spent for him, or we won't. We don't get to cherry pick the things that we want and say, well, this is the holiest life that I can live right now by my own standards. Here is what Psalms reminds us. What wisdom do we gain from this psalm overall? It tells us the kind of life that honors God. That's what this shows us. What kind of life is it that will honor God? You know, there, are, there are many, I just want to encourage you in this, there are so many people around us in the context of who we are as individuals and families that are hungering for authentic Christianity. They want to see authentic Christianity actually lived out. And if you follow me for a day, I'm not saying that you're going to be following a holy man who gets it all right. I can tell you, you're going to be following someone who's pretty genuine, who messes up, who struggles, who's frustrated, who doesn't always feel close to God, who yearns for more, who doesn't always pull off his quiet time or meditating on the word. Like, you're going to see that guy. There, there's an aspect of authenticity there. But I think what people really, really want is not that they see real lives, but that they see real scriptural Christianity worked out in the lives of believers. Yes, they, they need to see that you're a real person. That's not authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity is whenever we take the word and we actually begin to live it. Authentic Christianity is Christianity as God defined it. And so if you and I want to, to do the ministry that God has given us, which Corinthians says is the ministry of reconciliation, then we need to live authentic Christian lives. Not, well, I'm just going to show them, like how, how messed up I really am so they can see that I have hope in Jesus and that they have hope in Jesus. Maybe Paul said that. Paul said that he's the chief of sinners so that basically everybody could see that, that God is gracious to everybody. If Paul could be saved, then who else? 
can be saved. Like it, so he looked at it that way. I'm saying people just are longing to see what real Christianity looks like, not defined by us, but, but defined by Scripture. And so the most relevant message that a church can preach, y'all get this, is, is the gospel. Like that is the most relevant thing. It is timeless. It meets everybody where they are. I'm not saying that I'm against topical sermons because sometimes we're going to do those. But a steady diet of topical sermons on having a better marriage and being a better parent and living a better life and having a better quiet time and navigating um, idols in our lives like I'm, and navigating money, like those are good and necessary. But what people really need is the gospel. Because when you get the gospel, that begins to change everything about who you are. And if you encounter the gospel and it changes nothing about who you are, you did not accept the gospel. If the king of all glory can come into your lives and you're completely unchanged and unfazed, then the king of glory did not come into your life. I mean, when the Holy One impacts your life, uh, Paul Washer has the, the analogy. Because I, I'm, here's, here's my connection to this. I look at verses 2 through 5 and I'm like, who in the world can do that? Only one who's been changed by the glorious king. Okay, This is not doable in our own esteem. But Paul Washer has this illustration, and he says, you know, what if, and I'll, I'll just contest, God, what if I was late to church today like y'all are singing, and I come rushing in, and, and, I, and I look like this, and I, I, I come stand on the front row, and then I get up, and I do the announcements, and I, and I get there, and I'm like, y'all, I'm so sorry. Like, I was on my, way, uh, on my way to church, and on the way I had a flat tire, and I, and I know y'all probably know that, but I had a flat tire, I was pulled over on the side of the interstate, and, and as I'm changing that tire, uh, I break the lug nuts loose, and, and one of them rolls into the road, and I'm like, I'll get that here in a second. But I go to pull the, the wheel off, and I fall back. And whenever I do, the wheel begins to roll into the road. And, and it's, i got to get that, that wheel back. And so I go out there, I grab the wheel, and whenever I turn around, there's a semi, and it just slams me. And, like, I mean, it's going 75 miles an hour. That semi slams me. It throws me down the road. But don't worry. Like, I'm, I'm here, right? I'm okay. So I get up. I grab that wheel. I make it back. I put the wheel on, and I put the lug nuts on. I'm so sorry I'm late. Y'all, if I get hit by a semi, you're going to know it, and I'm not getting up. And a semi is only so big, and the eternal God is so much bigger. When you get slammed with the eternal king, you can't hide that or change that. So when we encounter a God that big, it will begin to change our lives. Little by little, and over time, a little bit becomes a lot. That's sanctification. Okay, so the wisdom in this is, this is a kind of life that honors God. The most relevant message that we can preach for all people for all time is the gospel. Timely topical ones, fantastic for a season. But what people really need to hear is that we are desperately in need of a Savior. And when that Savior comes in and you commit your life to Him, it changes absolutely everything. And whenever it changes everything, like in Psalm 15, this is what our life begins to look like. I'll break it down for you. And I'm changing the verb, but we will walk blamelessly. We will do what is right. We will speak truth even in our hearts. We will not slander. We will not do evil to our neighbors, even in our hearts. We will not take up a reproach against our friends. In other words, we forgive them and we're, we're not against them. We will hate what is wicked and evil. That's what verse 4 says. We will honor those who fear the Lord. 
We will be humble and humbly serve others. We will not be financially greedy. That's what verse 5 points to. And if we, our lives are aligning in that way, it says, he, quote, he who does these things shall never be moved. You know why the never? Because the roots are deep in Christ. Whenever we are rooted in Christ, these are the good works that begin to, to culminate within us. So what a powerful declaration that whenever we live for God, then our lives will never be moved. But that sounds like some pretty radical living. Walk blamelessly. Do what is right. Speak truth even in your heart. Do not slander. Do not speak evil. Do not be financially greedy. Be humble and humbly serve others. Honor those who fear the Lord. I mean, that's a lifestyle right there. Those aren't things you check off. That becomes your character of who you are. So what I do with that is I think of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then there's this, though. Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Christian life is not just that God came in and, and changed everything and then just left you going. It's, it's, it's synergistic. It's both sides. That's what Philippians says, is that God is working within us and we have to work alongside as well. Like this is the duty that we have. So I look at Psalm 15 and I say, God, I totally see your wisdom. Help me to walk blamelessly today. Help me to not be financially greedy. Help me to honor those who fear the Lord. And like I just kind of walk through that and that becomes my prayer. But if you want to know what the world is hungry for, I think the world is hungry for Psalm 15. The gospel creates this in us. You can make it a checklist. That's what the Pharisees no doubt did. Make it a checklist. You know what happened with the Pharisees? They completed a checklist and they totally missed Christ. Seek Christ and this begins to work itself out in our lives. Okay, Psalm 15, tied it all up. We're good. Psalm 19, okay? Wisdom. Wisdom Psalms. As we're, we're moving to this one, this is going to focus more on the word of the Lord. But uh, just to, as you're turning there, I think Psalm 15 does this for me. Believe in him as a savior and then live for him as the king. That's what the Christian life is about. Believe in him as a savior and then live for him as the king. Like, he's the Savior, he's the King. Believe in Him, live for Him. That's the, the mantra, that's the, the emphasis of our lives. Believe in Him as a Savior and then live for Him as a King. Psalm 15 is only one psalm, one glimpse of what that looks like. That's why we need to study the Word more and more. Let it define who we're supposed to be. By the way, if Psalm 15 were a report card over the last, let's just say, week for me, I, I got a low GPA, Okay. So I'm not sitting up here as someone who's saying, got this one figured out. You guys come along and follow me. I'm saying, stay away from me while I work this out with fear and trembling before my God. Okay, I'm with you. Totally with you. But how cool is it whenever you have those others around you who desire the exact same thing and you're working it out on your own and together for the glory of the King. Psalm 19. I'm going to read it in its entirety. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he, God, has set a tent for the sun, 
which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its teeth. Y'all, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Man, what a great psalm. What is the wisdom that we gain from this psalm? I think first... Uh, we look at the first stanza. By the way, I taught in an, I taught English for eleven years, um, taught seventh through college, and here was my definition for a stanza. So if you're like, hey, we don't like poetry, we don't even remember what stanza is because I was in seventh grade and I don't remember, but I'm not going to say anything right now. Okay, a stanza is a poetic paragraph. That's all it is. So whenever you see a group of lines together and then you see a break and then you see, so I hope that whenever you leave this place and they say, what'd you talk about at church? You don't just say, well, we talked about stanzas. I hope that there's more to it, but you can at least say you learned what a stanza was again. Okay, so in the first stanza, we learned that all of creation hears the voice of heaven. Like the gospel and the goodness of God is not just felt and experienced by us. It's throughout all of the heavens. All of creation is crying out and knows this voice. That God's beauty is sung about absolutely everywhere. I just think that's pretty insane. I think it, I love, I told you, I love pictures and science of space. And, and they discover these new planets and these stars. And I don't, I don't care so much about the theories. I love the actual aspects of creation that you can see. Because it reminds me again and again that this God that I thought I'd figured out, he's got to be that much more magnificently large to have this vast creation. And all of creation knows who he is. We, like as a, as a humanity, as a creation, y'all, there is something stubborn in our humanity that does not seek to honor the glory of God. And yet the stars are burning and the, the planets are spinning, and the waves are rolling, and everything else knows of the Creator. And we in our hearts say, there's no God. How can there be a God? Like it's a stubborn humanity that denies the Creator. And so the opening stanza reminds me, it doesn't matter if I deny Him or not. Everything else knows, and He still gets all due glory. He doesn't have to have me believe in Him for His glory to be magnified. It's already magnified. There is a goodness in Him that radiates all throughout creation. Number two, what else do we see? We see how we should behold God's Word. We, as a church, as believers, should behold God's Word in this way. And I don't. I don't. I wish I did. But I'm right there in the mud, muck, and mire with you. I do not always esteem God's word in this way. How should we esteem it? You don't need anything created for me. Just look at his word. Here we go, verse seven. You and I should see God's word in this way, that the law of the Lord is perfect. And you know what it will do? It will revive your soul. 
I think if I really truly believe that, I would pour into his word so much more. It would revive your soul. Goes on, the testimony, which is still the word of the Lord, is sure, and it makes wise as simple. We can't sit there and say, we don't know what to do. His word will make us wise. Look at the next one, the precepts of the Lord, which is another way of saying the word of the Lord is right. And you know what it does? It rejoices the heart. You know what it goes on to say? The commandment of the Lord, which is the exact same way, or I'm sorry, another way of saying the exact same thing, that the word of the Lord is pure and it enlightens the eyes. If we want to know holiness, we must read the word. If we want to know purity, we need to look at the word. And then it goes on in verse 9. The fear of the Lord, that's the wisdom. It is clean and it endures forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold. And sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Y'all know why we should be seeking God's word every single day? Because it's to be desired more than gold. It becomes an option for us. Like it, uh, the truth is we prioritize that which is like most important for us. And if I really thought that this was to be desired more than gold and that this was sweeter to my taste than honey, then why in the world would I not carve out the time to get into it? Because even as Christians, the old man is still within us vying for all of our affection. Like, even though God's word says this is pure and sweet and valuable and good and our spirit says it is, then the flesh is like, yeah, but you just need a little bit more time for you right now. Like, this is what you need to be fully you. Whenever God's word says that whenever we are fully us, we are never fully his. So we just want to cling to the word. So how do I deal with that? Just wisdom. Lord, teach me to see your word that way. Give me wisdom so that, I, so that I'm pushing and vying for that. Y'all, the most absolutely valuable thing, and, and we can see this here, that I or Andy or any elder that preaches in this church, the most valuable thing that we can give you is God's word. Even whenever it's confusing, even whenever it's challenging, whenever it's convicting, you and I need God's word. Why? Because it revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. and endures forever. It's righteous altogether. And it is more desirable than gold or honey. Plus, it has an authority that I don't. I don't get to call sin what's not sin. I don't get to establish what's right and wrong. The word does. So the most absolutely abiding thing, the, the most wonderfully abiding thing that we can give you for the next 10, 20 years is not great wisdom that we have gathered through reading all these books, but to constantly take you back to God's word. It does all the work it needs to. You and I also need this one. I see wisdom in this. I also love the wise humility of the psalmist in verse 12 and 13. Y'all look at this one. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Now, y'all, there, there is wisdom right there. I mean, just, let's just break it down real quick. Note, note these verses and maybe make them part of, of your own prayer time. Declare me innocent from, from hidden faults. Like the psalmist is saying to God, there are faults in my life that I don't even know about. But I care so much about holiness that declare me innocent. I didn't, there are faults that I do that I didn't even know that I was doing. I'm sorry. It wasn't just a, hey, I was ignorant of it, but there's, it's saying declare me innocent. There's an, an apology in that. 
It says, forgive me of the faults I can't even see. And I'm not even aware of. In other words, y'all, I don't even want to ignorantly defame your name. Not even purposefully, but just ignorantly. Am I defaming who you are? So there's wisdom in that. I, I want to pick that up into my prayer. So then he goes on. He says, keep back your servant. Look at this, from presumptuous sins, prideful sins. In other words, he's saying in those two, those two texts, keep me from those sins. Declare me innocent of those times that I defame your name and I didn't even know it. And then he's saying, and whenever I did know it, it was in my pride that I sinned. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Keep me back from knowingly sinning against who you are. That's why we sin, y'all. We sin because we're proud. We're, we sin because in our pride, we think we deserve to indulge or to embrace or we're enticed by this. Temptation itself is not sin. Keep that in mind, too. Just because you're tempted, though it may feel dirty and, and, and uncomfortable, temptation is temptation. Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted and yet did not sin. You and I will be tempted, and we cannot sin. Now, what we want to do is we want to guard our lives so that temptation becomes less and less frequent, but we want to be careful that when temptation comes, we don't presumptuously say, I deserve that, or I want to indulge, or I want to be a part of that. So, so there's wisdom in those two verses. I want to keep going just a little bit further, and here we go. Lastly, we see the psalmist's heart, and it models wisdom for us. Here's the wisdom. The psalmist really does want to live a life that honors God. Let the, medita- I'm sorry, let the words of my mouth, how I speak, and the meditation of my heart, what I think, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Consider how that changes. Let what I say and let what I think be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my word. Like... I didn't even mean that pun right there, but that one works. But oh my word, we have to be careful. Our desire to live a God-honoring life is that the words we speak will be acceptable to God and that the thoughts we have in our hearts and meditations will be acceptable to God. I mean, that's, that causes you to start rethinking. And what I do hope happens is that we look at the wisdom, as we look at the wisdom of Psalms, like there is conviction. I hope that there is conviction But y'all, don't forget the beauty of the cross. The conviction that happens in our lives that challenges us, that's God's spirit working within us. Have you ever given up on somebody? Like to the point to where you see the pattern of their life and you finally just go, I don't care. Like, I mean, it's doing no good. You kind of just step back and, and move your hands away. You quit investing in them like you've given up on them. Conviction in our hearts is God showing that he hasn't given up. He knows who we are. He knows our frame. He knows we are but dust, and yet he does not withdraw from us. But he says, yes, but let's do this more. Like, let's push further. I have not completely forsaken or given you up. I forsake my son on the cross so that I would not give up on you. The blood of the cross is what has sealed us in God's family. But if you know what it means to give up on someone, you know what it means to pull back, you're no longer investing, the fact that you are convicted of sin is proof that you are God's and that he's not done working. So, be careful that you don't just make the Psalms just about the psalmist. That's, that's a temptation, especially as you're thinking, well, what was the context? Like, wasn't David being attacked right here? I mean, I think that that's good, but I think that the Psalms supersede the context in which they were written. So, yes, David was probably being surrounded by a very real army. But you know what? So are you and I. 
It would be foolish and ignorant, excuse me, ignorant for us to think that as we gather here, this is like the most holy of holy places and there's no evil within our midst. Do I believe that, that angels and demons are all about us? I do. I'm Southern Baptist and I said that, but you can do that. But I do believe that there's a spiritual realm and I believe that Satan and his, his demons are actually very active within a church. We need to be mindful of that. That's why we vie. But we, we want to be, so we have an enemy that's all around us, just like David did, just like the other psalmist. We have the same God that they had. He demands the same thing that he demanded of them. He demands it of us. Like the psalms were not just meant for the psalmist, they were meant for God's people. And so as we read them, it's okay to let them kind of move beyond the page in the context and infiltrate our lives for the glory of God. Okay, I'm just going to tell y'all, I had Psalm 32, um, but we're not going to get to it today. And um, by the way, my notes are always fully available. Here is how I would like for us to finish, though. Go to Psalm 37. This is the, the conclusion. Man, the Psalm 32 was really good. Not because of my notes, but man, it's just real. You should read Psalm 32 um, for sure. We're going to conclude with Psalm 37. And I hope that you are so encouraged by this. And then we're going to sing of the goodness of our God. Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of evildoers. And be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land of befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, church. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land in just a little while. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek, the humble, shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth against him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword, their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless church, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times, and in the days of famine they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. Take hope, y'all. The wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. 
I have been young and am now old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. So turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, and he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart, and his steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death, but the Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. So wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. And though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold, the upright. For there is a future for the man of peace. The transgressors shall not be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, I have been young and now I am old. And yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Lord God, that is the great hope and peace we have. Lord, I pray that your word has done its effective work within us. We know it never goes out void. But Lord, may we learn your wisdom. And you show it to us in the Psalms, that there is a way that you want the righteous to live. Lord, may those become the prayers of our hearts. Lord, would you control our tongue and, and our fingers and our thumbs, Lord, any, any usage of our words, so that the words of our lips and the meditation of our heart are acceptable to you. Would you teach us to walk in a way that honors you and that doesn't desire to find glory in this world because it's passing away? Why is it we so foolishly seek the praises of a world that cares nothing about who you are? Or teach us to walk in a way that honors you. Because we weren't meant to find our glory here. Our glory is in you. And it's forever and ever and ever. Because you, Jesus Christ, stepped down from your throne to come for us. You're the reason that we can even begin to sing, speak, think, or act differently. Lord, help us to live a life that is authentically yours. Defined by your word. And for you and your kingdom alone. Amen.